Pharma should reduce their list price. This is a simple soundbite of advice for a pricing system that is full of complexity and may not be quite as simple as pundits and leaders want everyone to believe. Welcome to Dynamics High Five Podcast and our episode on why drug pricing is so darn complicated. I'm Mindy McGrath, and I'm joined by my colleagues, my co-hosts, and fellow healthcare industry enthusiasts, Ryan Hummel. Hi, everybody. And Mike Catone. Hey, team. And we're also joined today by one of our other fellow colleagues, Jen Berg, to help us dive into this topic. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. The Dynamic High Five podcast is our take on specific healthcare industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. And in today's episode, we'll discuss drug pricing, why prices are so high, why pricing is actually so complicated, and why proposed efforts to drive down costs may have unintended and undesired effects. And stick around for our parting thought. It's that thing that we've either read, heard, or seen that we'd like to share with you. How is everyone this morning? Doing great. It's uh, a little bit of a rainy day here in the podcast studio. It is, but I, I think we'll I think we'll get through it. Well, Jen is our sunshine, That's so right. <laughs> she's going to cast some light on this. We're so grateful to have you, Jen. So on to the topic. Uh, in 2017, the U.S. spent an estimated 450 billion dollars on prescription drugs. That equates to about 12% of the total healthcare spending in, in the market. And despite all the blowback around drugs like EpiPen and promises from key pharma companies such as Allergan and Pfizer, who pledged to halt prices, price increases, what we saw in 2019 is a kickoff to the year with manufacturers actually raising prices on approximately 250 drugs at an average of about 6.3%. So I'm just going to Lay it out there, because I think it begs the question, why are brand name drugs so expensive? So I think it would be really easy to cast blame on pharma companies that set the list price. But if we responsibly evaluate what the supply chain process looks like, it becomes obvious that there are many factors that need to be considered within the pricing process, including the clinical value, competitive market landscape, the novelty of a therapy, and the impact on the pricing concessions throughout the supply chain. The first things that are typically cited when explaining high drug prices are the high costs and risks of drug development. In 2013, Tufts estimated that it took $2.87 billion in actual and capitalized cost to bring a single FDA-approved medication to market. With only 1 in 10 making it from Phase 1 clinical trials to approval, manufacturers are looking for a high return to make the investment worthwhile. And to incentivize the R&D needed to bring new and innovative therapies to market, the patent systems grants manufacturers an effective monopoly for 7 to 10 years once these drugs are approved. And I get that. I think that's um, that's a really good point to make that we often kind of overlook when we think about, about this. Um, one of the things that you mentioned, Mike, that I thought was interesting was this whole idea of, um, you know, the drug supply chain process and what's what is given, right, in that process um, mm-hmm. that actually starts to escalate prices. Although I do want to point out as we dive into this, like I personally think that list price matters a lot, especially considering how prevalent new benefit constructs have become in our marketplace, um, especially the ones that include things like high deductible health plans and coinsurance. So you think about enrollees in Medicare Part D and individuals that are enrolled in employer-sponsored plans or commercial pa- plans. I mean, 
for many parts of, of the year, they actually have to pay the full list price of a drug out of pocket. Mm-hmm. And then they move into a coinsurance design. I mean, that amount that we are talking about when it comes to patient responsibility based on full list price um, can become really daunting and very costly when we're talking about brand name drugs and specialty products. Yeah, Mindy. And I was going to say, you know, we know nobody pays the list price for, price, list price for a drug, but I'm going to edit that and say almost nobody play, pays their list price for a drug. And Unless then, you're in a high deductible uh, yeah, plan, and, right? And, and, Initially. And as, yeah. And that's we've talked about this before. And there are different prices depending on exactly what you said, who is buying or selling, when or where the transaction p- takes place, or even what type of plan you have. And even the most, you know, kind of Supply chains can be pretty complex across these large life science drug manufacturing organizations. But even in the most basic supply chain, uh, from manufacturer to wholesale or from pharmacy right to patient, um, there's just a lot of price negotiation that goes through from what we've learned. And there are markups at many of these steps. And, you know, we've used the car analogy before on this podcast. Yep. Um, Think of it like buying a car. The list price is the manufacturer's suggested retail price, the MSRP. But that's not what the dealership actually paid for the car. That's not what you are going to pay for the car. And there's a lot of negotiations that happen at each step from manufacturing all the way to when you drive out of the lot. And I would argue that the stress that is that you have when you're buying a drug or prescription is is very similar to buying a car, by the way, as someone that just bought one. So, um, the true price is often for these for these drugs a little convoluted and actually very inconsistent. Right, and I think that's why you know it, it makes it so complex, right? When we start to talk about drug pricing in the marketplace and why it's easy to just uh, really orient towards a soundbite that sounds simplistic, but it's it's really not, not. So when you think about drug supply chain and the contractual relationships that occur between different entities, um, it's really a multi-layered environment. And so you multiply what you just talked about exponentially for prescription drug supply chain and realize that, you know, Beyond just the pharma manufacturer, you're talking about products then that have to make their way through certain gates, such as wholesalers, and then on to pharmacies. They may even have to go into group purchasing organizations, or physicians may be purchasing directly through a buy and bill model. You know, we also have the Medicaid program, which purchases directly and indirectly in some cases. And then we have the public health services community clinics, um, which are purchasing medicines through the 340B program. And, of course, the most often blamed middleman that Ryan and and Mike and I love to to mention regularly. The middle person. Right, the middle person, (laughs) the pharmacy benefit manager or the PBM. And um, so you see how many how many different buyers there are and how many different price benchmarks exist, both from a regulatory standpoint and from a just market, you know, contractual negotiation standpoint. And I think while the regulatory environment really dictates the contractual relationships and some of those pricing floors, there are discounts and rebates, which we also talk about pretty regularly on the show, that are applied at every step along the supply chain to encourage access and reward volume. The challenge happens, though, is that those things all stop within these intermediaries. What's not happening is not getting pulled through 
to consumers. And I think that is why when we talk about drug pricing, we are hearing so much in the consumer community about the pain that consumers are feeling because they're not feeling any of the benefit of these negotiations that occur. Mindy, I think it's important to really dive into where this gets super complicated. And that's really around the different price metrics that these rebates and discounts are based off of. So starting with the wholesale acquisition cost, the WAC, that's basically the federally defined list price. And this serves as a basis for price negotiation between manufacturers and wholesalers, and as a basis for negotiated discounts and rebates between manufacturers and private payers. Since WAC doesn't take into account the rebates and discounts we're talking about, it's overly inflated because the goal is to get to a price where they think is is a fair reimbursement for the drug. Then you have the average wholesale price, and that's the price that pharmacies pay wholesalers, which a few companies collect and publish, and that's used to set reimbursement rates to pharmacies. But this number is inflated too. A little bit better is the average manufacturer price, and that's the price manufacturers charge wholesalers and pharmacies after discounts, and that's what's used to determine Medicaid rebates. But to pay the pharmacies, Medicaid Medicaid uses the estimated acquisition cost, which is an estimated cost plus a reasonable dispensing fee. Recently, we've seen a push to use more accurate alternative metrics, like the actual acquisition cost and average sale price, which often reflects cost after most or all discounts are paid. But these metrics often lag, or they're only available for a subset of drugs. Yeah. And one of the things that you said, Mike, that really um, just kind of came to my mind, too, is when we talk about uh, price increase and the fact that you see a regular cadence, right, with pharma companies that um, two times a year they tend to increase their WAC or their list price. And it's anywhere between, you know, I'd say 5 and 9%, usually under double digits. Um, I think where, where pharma companies have an opportunity and where they've really struggled, right, is trying to get the public to really understand the difference between list price and net price, right? Net price usually being much lower than list price because of all these rebates mm-hmm. and discounts that we're talking about that make their way through um, that the healthcare supply chain. And, um, you know, it's easy to just point fingers at a PBM. I would argue that, that many individuals aren't really even clear on what a PBM's role is or what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's like a real opportunity here to try to distill um, and educate to a certain degree about how does this process really work and and why do pr- prices feel so high for individuals um, rather than just pointing at PBMs, like really trying to help um, consumers understand the complexity without getting too into the weeds around how the money flows, right, and why it doesn't flow back to them. Um, and then net-net, like a pharma company, yes, is is making profit, but you know, one could argue when you look across the board that many pharma companies' net price or the price that they recognize as revenue is actually lower than that list price that they set. So, just it, it came to mind as you mm-hmm. were talking through this about where the, where is their opportunity? Yeah, and Mindy, you and I have talked about this before as well. There's there's actually an article in the Atlantic just recently about you know yes yes list prices have gone up uh, in the pharma world, but they they have gone up in the same trajectory as all other healthcare prices. Yes. So it, it's just really interesting that that gets the the headlines and that gets the the attention of patients, right? I, I think it's just, you know, this lack of clarity. Mike, you mentioned all of the different costs, whether it was wholesale acquisition costs, WAC, or the real acquisition price, or the a wholesale price, all of those different 
um, prices and costs throughout the supply chain are, are quite confusing. And it talks about this lack of price transparency that goes all the way down to end users. And by end users, we mean not just patients, but physicians and other providers that are actually prescribing these drugs. They actually don't know or, or aren't exposed to the actual list price either. So it's this real interesting lack of clarity. I think the car dealership analogy only goes so far because I think dealers know what the list price is, and, and <laughs> sometimes mm -hmm. physicians and providers don't. And for insured patients, low copays disguise these actual costs of the medications, and with even more coupons that defray what's being paid at the pharmacy. So, Jen, um, you know, we've been hogging the mic here most of the time, so I'm, I know you know a lot about this and have been reading up on the PBM, so tell us a little bit more about this. Thanks, Ryan. Um, all of this functions to drive drug prices and overall healthcare spending even higher. You talked about low copays and copay cards. You know, those things really drive utilization for those high cost brand name drugs. And the PBMs who are getting rebates that index on those inflated drug costs that Mike mentioned earlier, uh, they're incentivized for high utilization and don't mind when the list price goes up. Even though they are now passing through a higher percentage of the rebates and shifting their revenue source to service fees, they're still earning money off the difference between each benchmark used across their various contracts. And despite managing a large portion of our nation's patients, government payers have limited negotiation power to counterweight those high list prices or high um, negotiated prices. There are laws that prevent the exclusion of certain high-cost drugs from formularies, so they have to be covered by those payers. And with specialty insurers only picking up 15% of the Medicare Part D costs, there's not much incentive for them to really push for good prices on the government's behalf. So we've talked about a lot of different issues on this episode so far. We've talked about the rebate and cost reduction structure. We've talked about the varying number of prices that are out there and kind of the, the opaqueness of the pricing process. What do we think we could do to actually lower these costs? It, I, I put that silence in there uh, purposefully, so we could, it was very dramatic. But I think it's a good question, Mike, that you know we may not know all the answers for, but we talked a little bit about this in some past episodes. There is a lot of attention driven by this administration that's being directed uh, through whether that's executive agency action or even proposed legislation. We talked a lot about the blueprint and the Prescription Drug Price Relief Act. Um, a few of these tactics that are in there of linking the prices of prescription drugs to, to, to the U.S. to the median price from five countries. If, if you recall, we talked a little bit about the European model, that, that some of the countries do that as well. Um, also allowing um, the HHS secretary to actually no negotiate prices paid by Part D, which is a huge change, right? Mm -hmm. um, or even letting consumer import drugs from Canada, permitting more generic drug competition for excessively priced products, things like requiring drug makers to reveal the prices of certain drugs in direct-to-consumer advertising, and even imposing fines on drug makers for you know large dramatic price hikes. I mean, these are pretty um, substantially uh, significant ideas. Um, and most recently, the HHS proposal actually eliminates legal provision that allows drug companies and these pharmacy benefit managers, the PBMs, to negotiate rebates in exchange for preferential positioning on formulary. And I'm not sure that this all changes the price of the drugs, but these are some tactics that uh, we're hearing day in and day out. Um, Jen, what do you think? 
Yeah, Ryan, that feels like a mixed bag to me. I can definitely see a few of those things working. Um, For example, increasing generic competition. But I don't really see how including pricing in those DTC ads would be effective, uh, particularly given the convoluted dynamics we discussed during this episode. And even linking prices to the median price in other countries is a little bit more complicated and maybe less effective than it seems. You know, many of those countries are negotiating at the national level, where they're covering most, if not all, of the lives, versus only one-third of Americans are currently on government-sponsored insurance. So there's a lot less negotiation power overall. Plus, those other nations are willing to walk away from drugs that don't meet certain cost-effectiveness metrics. Um, And who's to say that some of these tactics that were proposed uh, recently across the various um, government institutions won't just cause manufacturers to raise prices in these other markets that are perceived as, quote unquote, being subsidized by the U.S. You know, the same thing could happen with importing drugs from Canada. Uh, It'd be pretty difficult logistically, first of all, for the U.S. to process drug purchases through a country that's about one ninth of its size. Uh, But the most likely response of manufacturers would probably be to limit drug sales to Canada or to raise the Canadian drug prices to make up for that lost revenue, which could lead Canada to outlaw exportation of drugs to the U.S. altogether. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about, like, what what are the unintended consequences when you start talking about how you try to solve for this and why this, you know, I keep going back to why this is so complicated and it's not as simple as just one thing is going to solve for this. It is going to have to really be a broad, I, I think, broad, thoughtful approach, likely beyond the blueprint, right, which seems extremely tactical right now, to really kind of string together why have we ended up with a system that is resulting in such complexity that even entities in the system have a hard time explaining, right, um, what is going on and what drives it? So I think, Jen, you're right. I think simply tying our pricing to other countries probably is not going to work. It's also going to take a while when you think about how they'd have to go about doing that through um, renegotiating things like um, – like uh, agreements between the two companies or countries. But I think there are certainly things that they could do differently when deciding which drugs to approve and cover that could be worth considering. I mean, so if you think about the FDA right now, um, they do not really consider whether a drug is reasonably priced compared to other drugs. That's not within their mandate. Um, oftentimes, they they kick that over to the payers and let the payers make that decision. Um, and we even have a quasi-private in, um, body called ICER that has been looking at drugs and giving an opinion on whether the value of the drug is worth the price. So there are some some Um, organizations that are weighing in on this, how regularly they are used and how consistently is is up for debate. But the FDA doesn't consider it to be part of their mandate or their purview. However, in Europe, right, approval is typically this two-step process with the initial approval based on safety and efficacy. And then the second step is really considering the cost effectiveness of a drug. Um, A lot of times it's because when you're looking at these developed nations, they have global budgets around what they are going to spend on drugs. So you you mentioned Canada, Jen, and and, and Canada uses what we call reference pricing to keep their cost down. So they're tying the cost of new drugs in existing therapeutic classes to drugs that are already being sold. 
Um, other countries also use that practice. Um, they are also investigating what we call outcomes-based payment arrangements for costly specialty drugs. So I think there's a lot of learnings out there from how other countries are doing it and how we may want to approach this in a different way. And I think we're hearing some of this kind of pop up in pieces in the blueprint that was introduced by the administration, but I'm not sure that there's a full commitment yet to, to kind of go down the path that we've seen other countries go. Yeah, and it sounds like to me, Mindy, that um, it's really about some of the stuff we've talked about in the past. It's having the right data. And I'd say even more than just having the right data, feeling that we could share that data, that would be critical for any of these approaches to work kind of holistically. Um, to, to incorporate clinical value into pricing or to undertake some of the value-based pricing and contracting you mentioned, you'd really need proper analytics and tracking via the EHR. And again, we also have talked about EHRs in the past and the fact that it's a, it's a bit of a fragmented world, both across the nation and then actually within IDNs themselves. So, um, you know, although there's momentum, we're going to need those technologies to gather cost-effectiveness data. And, you know, for reference pricing to work, that you mentioned, insurers would need up-to-date info on drug prices. Uh, providers would need access to prices at different distribution sites, all of which right now, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd argue are in a world of opacity and are unclear right now. And within each therapeutic class, we'd need that information as well. Um, so yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's a tough road to tell for sure. And I, yeah, I think we've seen some movement in the direction of understanding how to how to integrate pricing into kind of the prescription and recommendation treatment recommendations from physicians uh, last year cvs partnered with epic to launch a program that incorporates real-time prescription cost data into the ehr workflow which is interesting to me because i think in addition to the technological challenge that, that presents that's an entirely new conversation that a physician now has to have with a patient around cost for treatment that they aren't having today and yeah. when you when you go to the doctor they're not saying you should get this and it's going to be this many dollars because mm -hmm. it's got to go through those couple layers of abstraction to understand what the price is going to be and you often don't see that until you get to the pharmacy you're in the checkout line and then they say are you aware of the price of this drug yeah and it could be three dollars it could be $300, and you don't know until that point of sale. So I think that's a really interesting wrinkle in all of this. Physicians are now going to have to be empowered and educated on how to have a new conversation with their patients around the cost of the drug if an EHR-based like payment integration actually comes to fruition. Yeah, and, and you know what you just actually triggered for me? A, a conversation we had had in a previous co podcast around just the structure of the U.S. healthcare system and the claim system and how backwards mm -hmm. it is, right? It's not never been structurally oriented to be consumer-friendly um, or be transparent with pricing. Like, everything happens kind of after the fact and after care is delivered. So I think to your point, it is not only educating physicians, but there is still something in here around the structure of the system that needs to be changed. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I was thinking about as Jen was talking about some of the various programs out there. So you think about our patient population, right, and the many different programs that people are covered under, whether it's Medicaid, whether it is um, they are uninsured, right, and they have to seek care uh, from a community clinic that serves the underserved and those drugs are coming through the 340B program or whether you're in Medicare or the individual marketplace or the employer-sponsored care or the, the VA. Um, we have, as 
a country, right, established many, many pricing benchmarks through the regulatory um, efforts in our country. And I think that that also leads itself. I mean, I don't think we can under underscore how how much complexity that um, our regulatory efforts have actually added to the drug pricing practices that exist. Um, so much so that when you go into a life sciences company, right, you see entire functions that are wholly dedicated to trying to track Medicaid rebates, right, and ensuring that the Medicaid rebates are not dipping below some point or that they're adhering to the best price contracts. So, you know, it's, it's physician education, it's consumer orientation, it's structurally how do we you know, think about changing the claims process and driving more transparency. And then it's regulatory. Like, what do we need to change to actually simplify some of the mandates that life sciences companies have to adhere to if they are going to provide products in those marketplaces? And and um, it's almost like, what have we done to ourselves to put mm-hmm. ourselves in this position? So lots to think about, um, lots to talk about. So uh, Jen... I hope that we can regroup maybe a year from now and talk about what's going on with drug pricing again and whether it's still as darn complicated as it seems today. Um, wanted to thank you for joining us on High Five uh, as we unpack the thinking around the complexity of drug pricing. And um, I hope you will come back and join us again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm sure we'll have lots more to talk about as the various proposals to minimize drug spend unfold. So guys, that was a fascinating discussion with clearly no easy answer. And um, obviously, it's one of those topics that we talk about offline. I'm glad that we brought it into today's episode. And as we wind down today's episode, it is time for our parting thoughts. So I'm going to kick it over to Mike to start us off. Great. So my parting thought today is about an article that I read uh, about a machine learning algorithm that predicted heart attacks with 90% accuracy. So fare a little bit better than providers actually making those predictions. And the interesting thing to me about this study, uh, well, first of all, it was done in the University of Turku in Finland, and it was done kind of post-event, post-mortem. So they looked at all of these indicators over a six-year period. They knew the outcomes of the the patients studied within the study. So they, they knew who died, they knew who had a heart attack and survived. And they were able to kind of identify the features that these patients had, whether it was the level of coronary plaque that they had, thickening of arteries, and they were able to identify which which data points actually were correlated to a higher likelihood of a heart attack. Um, and it's just really interesting to me because it it's a it's I think where medicine is going uh, in the future, and I think providers will be using these types of tools to help them with their diagnosis. Because I don't necessarily think it's something where it's going to replace the job of the provider, but it's going to allow the provider to see beyond their own experience, to see data from hundreds or thousands or millions of patients to really understand what type of characteristics are going to have an impact on their patient's health. And I think it's I think it's a good step forward, and I would, I would just love to see more, more of these types of studies done to show how accurate these can be. Yeah, I think it, was, it is such an interesting article. I actually read it as well. And I think it's interesting to talk about how this helps to augment, right, the idea mm-hmm. of evidence-based medicine and just providing providers with more resources and tools to be better equipped 
to handle um, individuals as they present to them in sometimes really, you know, very emergency type situations. Mm-hmm. Um, my parting thought, I- I'm actually going to stick with what our topic was today. Uh, there was a really interesting article in Health Affairs that was entitled The Administration's Drug Rebate Reforms for Implementation Questions that Will Influence Whether Drug Costs Actually Fall. Uh, the Trump administration has outlined this ambitious agenda to reduce prices for prescription drugs, as we have talked about before. Um, and they outlined it in that 2018 blueprint that we saw introduced um, uh, probably in June or July of last year. The article really highlighted, I thought, areas that focused on the impact that the blueprint has on Medicare Part D plans, the disruption it may actually cause for Part D enrollment, how CMS is going to ensure that these point-of-care discounts that are part of the blueprint actually are are you know, paid and, and facilitated, and whether Medicaid recipients will receive any benefit at all. So I think Health Affairs does a nice job of really consolidating um, the, the question of whether any of these efforts are going to actually have an impact on drug costs and, and simplifies the concepts in an easy-to-read fashion. So I'd encourage you all to check it out if you get a chance. That's great, Mindy. It's funny, you know, we mentioned about all the layers in the podcast of this drug pricing, and we probably didn't mention enough about Medicaid. If you have 50 states with 50 Medicaid policies, it just adds, you know, presumably 50 more uh, <laughs> layers to the to the already complex process. Um, my my parting thought is interesting. It, it's a Reuters um, article that I re- read this week about appointments made in the AM lead to more cancer screening recommendations. It's actually funny because I just read a book by Daniel Pink called When, and it talked about how important or the correlation between the time of which we do things and the effectiveness of when we do it in that time. It talks about sleep and colonoscopies and lots of healthcare things. But this article itself talked about that patients that see doctors in the morning are a lot more likely to be referred for screenings such as colon screenings and um, breast screenings versus patients that see physicians and providers at the end of the day. This uh, study was done in our backyard in, in southeast Pennsylvania and New Jersey over t- three years, 2014 and 2016. And uh, it just was really interesting. Um, you know, and the, the article talks a little bit about the fact that is this um, anything to do with provider exhaustion? Does this have anything to do with patient's reaction during later in the day? It also, there's a, there's a tie-in around um, schedules within physicians and providers and how they're so tightly wound by the end of the day, they're running, they're running behind and they just try to catch up. So lots of details and, and, and thoughts about this. Um, like I said, it was, a, it was a JAMA survey or a JAMA study that was done. It was just released in May 2019, and I highly recommend you read it. It's fascinating. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of High Five. For links to resources discussed in this episode, to subscribe to this podcast, or connect with the Dynamic team to help you with some of your healthcare industry initiatives, please visit us at dynamic.com. We look forward to having more discussions with you about what's going on in the healthcare industry in our next couple of episodes. And until our next cast, have a great day.